Hello, and I'd like to give you all a big welcome to my Gresham College lecture on how great companies deliver both purpose and profit. Well, thank you very much to everybody for joining. And this is far from the perfunctory thank you that people typically use to start a lecture with. I, I know that these are really difficult times, and I very much appreciate you giving up an hour to listen to my talk. So this is a book launch for my book called Grow the Pie, How Great Companies Deliver Both Purpose and Profit. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to spend much of the talk uh, talking about the book, but at the end, I will speak about how we can apply the ideas of responsible business to the coronavirus crisis. So the book was completed before the crisis started, but a lot of the ideas are relevant today in these very difficult times. Now, I'm going to take you all from your homes quite far away. I'm going to take you all the way to the Great Rift Valley. So this stretches for 6,000 kilometres across two continents, from Mozambique in Africa to Lebanon in Asia. And the Great Rift Valley has some of the world's highest mountains and also some of its uh, deepest lakes. And one of these lakes is called Lake Magadi, which is in Kenya, the southernmost country in uh, the Great Rift Valley. Now, you might think, well... I haven't actually seen um, this lake before, but actually, some of you may have done. You may have seen it in the movie called The Constant Gardener from a John Le Carré book of the same name. But while millions of people may have seen Lake Magadi through this movie, fewer than a thousand people call Magadi the actual town its home. And one of those people is called Emmanuel Saronga, who makes a living selling goats. Now, it used to be, for Emmanuel, that cash was king. So it was cash that he used to receive for selling goats, and then it was cash that he had to check for forgery. It was cash he'd have to store at the risk of robbery, and then when he accumulated enough, it was cash that he had to take himself and trek for hours and hours to go to the nearest bank. And those hours, that would be a, a day's waste. And so sometimes he might have to pay somebody to take the cash to, to the bank. But sometimes that person would run off with the money and so he'd lose it. And also the accounting was difficult, difficult because with cash, it was really hard to record his transactions. But all of that changed because of a large corporation. Now, we typically think of large corporations as being evil and extracting value, but that wasn't the case. This large corporation was Vodafone. And what Vodafone did was it launched M-Pesa, a mobile money service. Now, notice that mobile money is not mobile banking. So mobile banking, you have a bank account, let's say, with Barclays, and you can just run this on the phone rather than going to the branch. But mobile money was even more revolutionary. Right. You don't even need to have a bank account to set it up. You can just trade money, just like people in Kenya are actually trading mobile phone minutes. And that's indeed where this idea started. So that was a huge innovation in 2007, which transformed the lives of hundreds. No, not hundreds, thousands. No, no not thousands. Hundreds of thousands of people. So a study found that by 2014, it had lifted 200,000 Kenyan households out of poverty. And many of those households were headed by women because they could move from agriculture to retail. 
And for Emmanuel, there was a huge difference for him, right? So now he was able just to focus on his passion and his vocation, which was tending his flock. No longer did he have to compromise where he could graze his goats to be close to a bank. He could go for the greenest pastures. And his bookkeeping was simple because he had all the record of transactions on his mobile phone. And it wasn't just commerce that MPator allowed. It allowed parents to pay for their children's school fees. It allowed um, children, when they were adults, to pay for their parents' healthcare bills. And also within communities, it led to communities sorting out a risk sharing system so that if anybody in the community got sick, then other people would pitch in and transfer their money with M-Pesa. So that's one story I'm going to start today with. But let's think of another story, of another great thing that Vodafone did. And it was, around a few years later, Vodafone became the first telecoms company to launch the world's first tax transparency report about how much tax they were paying to countries worldwide. And tax is really an important issue for telecoms because you can choose to locate your licenses in the low-tax countries. So my question to all of you is the following. It's actually two questions. The first is which of these decisions created most value for society? But second, which of these decisions, if not taken, would have led to most public outrage or worsened those Defone's corporate social responsibility, rating or reputation. Now I'm expecting there's probably going to be a lot of agreement among the audience as to the answers. Which decision created most value for society? It was creating M-Pesa, lifting hundreds of thousands of households out of poverty. But the answer to the second question, which decision if you hadn't taken it, would have hurt Vodafone the most? It's the second. Right. If you don't pay fair tax, there could be outrage, you could be shamed, there could be boycotts. And indeed, Vodafone did suffer at a boycott a couple of years ago because of their tax practices. You could be shamed by the media and you could get a bad corporate social responsibility rating by some ratings agencies. But instead, well, which created most value for society? It was actually creating M-Pesa. But what would have happened had Vodafone not created M-Pesa? There would have been no public backlash. Right? You don't get punished, typically, for not coming up with an innovation. You get punished for what I call errors of commission, actually committing something bad, paying too little tax, not for errors of omission, failing to absolutely do good. And so that's going to be my first main punchline of today's talk. It's to change our views as to what a responsible business is and what an irresponsible business is. Because we often think of a business as being as follows. So let's say the value that a company creates is given by a pie. And that pie can be split. You can either give slices of the pie as profits to investors or you can give them to stakeholders. And who are stakeholders? That's wider societies such as customers and employees and the environment. And we often think that the goal of a responsible business is to split the pie differently. Right, so why is capitalism in crisis and was in crisis before the coronavirus issue? It's because people thought that executives and investors were taking too much of the pie at the expense of everybody else. 
The blue part was too high because wages were too low, because prices were too expensive and because the environment was being polluted. So what responsibility involves is splitting the pie differently to make sure that investors don't take too much of their share. And indeed, the tax transparency report was in that light, right? Because it was to make sure that we actually were paying our fair share of taxes and that um, the blue slice wasn't too much. And indeed, if you think about a number of reformers who are trying to reform business and make it more responsible, they are all about splitting the pie differently. So we want to have restrictions on CEO pay so that CEOs don't get paid too much. We want to have restrictions on maybe dividends and share buybacks because investors, so we don't want investors to uh, make too much. And we also want some heavy regulation of businesses, again, to make sure that investors don't take too much of a pie. Now, I absolutely believe that there is a role for regulation. And in the book, I talk about how governments do need to play a role. But there is a, a limit to what regulation can achieve, right? Because regulation can only lead to compliance with the law, not commitment. So it could be that companies just do the minimum possible in order to satisfy the regulation, and then they still try to extract a lot of profits. So I think an approach to reforming business, which is based on just the stick, just on regulating and forcing businesses to do things, that can only achieve so much. Instead, what we want is an approach to business where it's actually in business's interest to voluntarily implement the new approach. So that's the first concern with the pie-splitting mentality. It can only lead to compliance, not commitment. And the second is that actually investors are important. Right? We like to think of investors as being nameless, faceless capitalists. They are them and society is us. We want to give as much of the pie as possible to us and not allow them to get too much. But it's important to stress that investors are not them. They are us. They include citizens who are saving for retirement. They include pension funds. They include university endowments. And so we do need to take investors very seriously. Right. So anything which argues we're going to clamp down on profits, that sounds great. That could win votes. But if we clamp down on profits too much, then indeed our retirement incomes may well be adversely hurt. So what we want is an approach to business that absolutely takes stakeholders really seriously and tries to increase the orange, but also tries to make sure that investors do get a reasonable share of the pie because investors are an important part of society. And so that is what the book is about. The book is about a different approach to business, which is the pie growing mentality, which is that by being run with the desire to create social value, that by treating our workers well, by not polluting the environment, and by um, not price gouging customers, providing products that really do transform their lives to the better, we're not increasing the orange part of the pie against the blue. Instead, what we're doing is we're growing the pie to benefit everybody. And that goes back to the first story I opened this talk with. That's what Vodafone was doing when they innovated and created M-Pesa. It wasn't that they were splitting the pie differently, like paying fair tax. Now, paying fair tax is absolutely important. But what I'm saying is you can't just pay fair tax and think I'm a responsible business. 
Right? Responsibility goes above and beyond that. It involves being inspired by thinking out of the box and seeing what can you do to serve society. So what did Vodafone do by creating Ampesa? They created substantial social value. The orange increased, but also the blue increased for a number of reasons. So Ampesa was something that eventually you're able to monetize. And far further than that, it just inspires a lot of people. So many workers wanted to work for Vodafone. Why? Because they are attracted to work for a company which could really make a difference to people's lives. Okay, so this is what I, I, I believe a responsible business is. One that does create profits, right? Profits are, are not evil, but they create profits not by taking slices from anybody else, not from moving from here to here, but instead by growing the pie, by creating social value. And instead, you see profits as a byproduct of doing that. Profits are not the end goal. Let me repeat that point because it's, it's pretty crucial. It's central to the entire book. What I'm about is an approach to business which I call economics. It's an approach to business that seeks to create profits only through creating value for society. So the primary goal of business is to make great products that transform customers' lives for the better, that to provide a healthy and enriching workplace for your employees, and to preserve the environment for future generations. As a byproduct of doing this, you ultimately become profitable, but it's not that you started with profits. Profits are what's achieved as a result of doing great stuff. Now, you might actually have a bit of scepticism in terms of what I say, because what I say might seem too good to be true. Well, I'm saying that if you're a company that does treat people well, then ultimately you become successful. Yeah, that, that sounds great if, if it, it could happen. But is this really the case? Like the fact that some businesses are being run with the idea of treating workers badly and increasing prices, isn't that because they think the pie is fixed? So what I need is I need large-scale evidence to show you that actually the pie can be grown, that it's realistic and achievable to think that both investors and society can benefit simultaneously. And indeed, a lot of the book is hard evidence to show you that what I'm discussing about is realistic and achievable. Now, I'm going to only just go through this briefly because I want to speak more about the implications and in particular the coronavirus crisis. But let me spend some time on the evidence because you shouldn't just take my word for it in terms of what I've just said in the first few minutes. Now, there were um, many papers before the research that I did which tried to look at a correlation between a company's social performance and its financial performance. And what they indeed found was there was a positive correlation. Companies that do better in terms of uh, generating outcomes for society, they're also more profitable. But we need to look at everything with quite a lot of scepticism. So some of you might have seen my TED talk, What to Trust in a Post-Truth World. And that's on the danger of confirmation bias. People are quite willing to accept stories that they'd like to believe. So we'd like to believe that companies that do well for society also perform better. So if we see this correlation between social performance and financial performance, we'd like to think, well, it's the first that caused the second. But as we know, correlation does not 
imply causation. Yes, this first bullet point, that is plausible. Social performance causes financial performance. But maybe it's the reverse. Maybe it's once a company is already performing well, then it can start thinking about stakeholders, but it's financial performance that comes first. Or maybe there's causality in either direction. It's not that social performance causes financial performance, nor is it that financial performance causes social performance. But there's a third variable that causes both. Maybe if you've got a great enlightened manager, she both leads to good social performance and she also leads to good financial performance. So that's where I I had to step in. So what I did um, around um, 14 years ago was to start doing research on this topic myself to try to get, can we get closer to causality? And the main innovation that I did was rather than looking at profitability as the measure of performance, I looked at future stock returns. So why do future stock returns actually improve on this? So let's say we're standing here in March 2020. And what, we, what I can look at is I look and look at a company stock price right now in March 2020. Now, if it indeed is the case that we had financial performance causing social performance, a company that was already doing well, its stock price would already be high today. And so we shouldn't expect it to go up going forward. Why? Because the starting point is already high. But if instead, what we find was that a company that's doing well for society has increasing stock returns, right? Things go up, then that does suggest that it was social performance that caused financial performance because the starting point was low to begin with, so we had the increase afterwards. Now, it's actually more complicated than that, but that's just the gist there, is that by looking at future stock returns, that's what's unexpected, that's what we could not predict by looking at current performance. And also it allows controls for risk, because you might think a strategy of building employee culture, that's something which is risky because in a downturn, you can't sell it like you could a machine. So that's the first thing. I'm measuring performance by future stock returns. But the second important thing is how do I measure social performance? So some of the existing studies which Margolis and Walsh were reviewing, they would use studies which might look at something like um, how many women are there on the board? But that's not a good measure of workplace diversity because it could well be that you don't care about diversity at all, but you choose to just put a token women or a token minority on the board just to tick the box. So instead, what I looked at was this measure called the 100 best companies to work for in America. So that's a measure of employee satisfaction. Now, Employee satisfaction is not the only important measure, like there's customers and there's environment, but I focus on employees because they're important in nearly every company. So the environment, well, that's clearly important if you're in the mining industry or an airplane, but maybe if you're in a bank, right, the environment doesn't matter so much, whereas employees are what I'll call material in every single industry. Now, it's not only a measure of employee satisfaction, but also a very thorough one, where they don't just look at wages or number of women on the board, they pick 250 workers at all levels and survey them deeply on 57 questions related to credibility, respect, fairness, and pride and camaraderie. 
And also, this was available for 28 years, so I had a huge amount of data that I was able to, um, to study. Because if I showed that this was something that worked for three years, how do I know that I didn't just get lucky? And maybe if those three years were in a boom, then they wouldn't apply to a recession, which is unfortunately what the current economic climate is, is heading towards. So we want something which we know works in both recessions and booms. So this long time series is really important. Now, I had the idea of the paper in February 2006. That's when I started it. And so I wrote the paper. I gathered the data. I did all the analysis. But in order to get a paper published in a top academic journal, you need to get feedback. You need to expose it to critiques. So people might not agree with the methodology. They might have a lot of quibbles. They might think the analysis needs um, some extra buttressing. And so what I did is I took it on the road. So here are the various people who gave me comments on the book. So some of the names here are people in the profession, other professors who I sent the paper to, and they very generously gave me some comments. And later on, there's a list of all the conferences that I presented to all around the world. And at every conference after presenting, you're assigned a discussant. And that's somebody who reads the paper beforehand and then gives a critique on it. And some of these critiques were, were difficult to hear. Right? Some of them were quite negative and sceptical. Why? Because many people, particularly in finance, they believe that markets are efficient. They believe that you can't make money by tra a trading strategy and certainly not make money on something seemingly fluffy like employee satisfaction. Again, I started writing this paper in 2006. That was before the responsible business movement was mainstream. So this was still something seen as, as, as pretty niche and, and pretty unusual. And indeed, then after you write a paper, then you have to send it for peer review. And this is something I'm gonna stress shortly in my next Gresham lecture on critical thinking. We must be wary of phrases such as research shows that X or a paper shows that X because there's loads of papers and, and you can always almost find a paper to show anything that you want to show. Right, there were papers claiming that vaccination was bad for you. So rather than just saying a paper shows X, what we need to look at is whether the paper was published in a top academic journal. Why does that matter? because it makes sure that the paper goes through peer review and the methodology is subject to really stringent standards. And the first journal that I submitted to rejected the paper. And the second journal I submitted to also rejected the paper. And let me say it was for good reasons. Right? We often say, ah, oh, well, people think oh, these journals are biased and they don't like new ideas. They stuck with the status quo and so on. But no, these, these journals, there were problems with the paper and, and the, I, did, I hadn't fully dotted the um, I's and crossed the T's. And so when I submitted to the third top journal, um, that I did get another chance. But when the, paper, when the journal is more positive, they don't accept the paper immediately. They have a status which is known as revise and resubmit where the peer reviewer has a number of concerns with the analysis, thinks, well, have you control for this or that? And the editor might do as well. And so I had to spend eight months afterwards addressing the concerns. I resubmitted it. And even then, it wasn't accepted. It got re-resubmitted um, after another round of review in June 2010. It was accepted in December 2010, right? So that was four years after I started. It took me four years to nail down the paper and that was published in September 2011.
So even though like this paper was, was novel and that it was something on social responsibility, journals were um, willing to take it. So isn't that the academic profession is entirely stuck in some old way of thinking, as some people would, would argue. But instead, what they quite rightly did was hold me to a high standard of showing what I was wanting to show in a robust and rigorous way. Okay, and so after all of that, after all of that pain, what was the punchline? What I found was that the 100 best companies to work for in America delivered stock returns that beat their peers by 2.3 to 3.8% per year over a 28-year period, which is 89 to 184% cumulatively. So that suggests that at least in terms of employees, the pie can be grown. By treating your workers well, you're not donating part of the pie to them at the expense of investors. Instead, by paying them well and giving them opportunities to develop, right, they become more motivated and more productive and they grow the pie and then ultimately investors are better off as a byproduct. Now, I mentioned that this is not um, that employees are only one part of the pie. But other responsible companies, they don't just look at employees, but they look at also customers or the environment. But there are other papers as well, which I go into in the book, which also show that those dimensions are linked to long-term returns as well. So rather than spending too long on the evidence, let me talk about what the implications are for all of us practitioners. And the book is divided into three sections in terms of the real-world implications. There's companies there's investors, and there's also citizens, ordinary people. Now, in terms of companies, well, what does this mean? Well, this means that creating stakeholder value, caring about society, this is not just worthy, it's not just about saving the dolphins, it is urgent, and it's important for a company's long-term success. So I don't think I've really used the word corporate social responsibility in this talk much. And indeed, this book is not about corporate social responsibility. Why corporate social responsibility is often referred to as an ancillary non-core action, which is delegated to a CSR department and generates good public return relations for saying, oh, we're doing some great stuff like we're giving to charity. And so that's not what the business is about. It's the book is about. It's about responsible business. It's about growing the pie, which is about you through your core activity, for Vodafone, that's telecommunications, creating value for society. And this is a CEO level issue that the chief executive needs to care about rather than something which is delegated to a CSR department. So often when I speak to conferences on the importance of purpose, I'm introduced as a professor of finance and the audience does a double take because often the finance department is the enemy of these purpose initiatives, thinking it's a waste of money. But actually what the evidence suggests is that anyone with that mindset is just not doing their job correctly. Second, there's implications for investors. So often investors think, well, I should invest in a company, I should base my analysis on profits and dividends and something like employee satisfaction, that's non-financial. But what this suggests is that even non-financial things do become financial in the long term. So even if you're not a socially responsible investor, even if your only goal is to maximise your long-term returns, you should care about these issues because they are financially important. And the final implications are for citizens, for, for all of us. 
So what Pyconomics suggests is that actually this is a way of restoring trust in capitalism. So a company that is profitable and successful, this need not be a company which has extracted the pie for others. But high profits need not be a sign of mistrust in capitalism. It could be that the company has been really successful. And indeed, what I also stress is how citizens can play their part in ensuring that businesses do create value and do create profit the right way. We often think about businesses as being huge. They do stuff to us as citizens. We're just innocent bystanders. But that's not actually the case, right? Actually, citizens can play a large role. So let's look at putting it into practice. And I'll, I'll go through this relatively briefly so I can spend enough time on the coronavirus crisis. So first, um, let's talk about companies. And importantly, let's think about, well, how is my approach different from what companies are doing already? Now, what some people would argue is they say it's radically different. They would say many companies right now are just evil. All they care about is profit. And indeed, they'll appeal to Milton Friedman, who wrote in 1970, who said the social responsibility of business is to increase profits. They will often cite this paper as a sign of how evil and narrow-minded that business is. They think that all they should be doing is maximise profits. And indeed, there's been a lot of influential people and indeed influential books written based on that idea. They're saying, look how evil business is. And if you present business as a straw man, you can easily present your approach and your view of the world as being clearly better. Why? If the status quo is seen as a caricatured straw man. But it doesn't help anybody just to misrepresent Milton Friedman. If you actually read his article, it's much more nuanced than the title suggests. Why he says businesses should maximise profits is that, well, at least if the profits are defined as long-term profits, in order to maximise profits in the long term, you have to treat your work as well. Otherwise, they'll, they'll leave. You can't pollute the environment or your brand will be hurt. And you also need to provide great products, otherwise your customers will stop buying. So he said you should focus on long-term profits because that will force you to take society really seriously. And so that's what um, I'll call enlightened shareholder value, where actually it's enlightened because it says, well, at least if profits are defined as long-term, then indeed um, you'll be help out society. But I would say, even if I would consider the current way of doing business as being enlightened shareholder value, there is still a big difference between that and economics, which is the idea that my book is proposing. Why is that? Well, under enlightened shareholder value, you do care about stakeholders, but only as an instrumental way to increase profits. And what do I mean by instrumental? It means that you do a calculation before you decide whether to invest in stakeholders. So for Vodafone, they would think, well, if I was to launch M-Pesa, how much money would I make? Right? Um, would I be able to monetize this? Well, let me try to calculate how many more people will join my company because they're inspired because of this story. Well, that's going to be really hard to uh, calculate. How much could we sell the service for? But that's probably going to be really low because Kenya um, was, was a very poor com country. But what is the approach of Pyconomics? Well, that's different. So there, you start with society. So society and stakeholders, they are the end in itself rather than a means to end, an end. 
So society comes first, and then you generate profits as a byproduct. But with the current approach of shareholder value, it's shareholder value comes first, and then profits and, and then stakeholders are the means to an end. And so let's go back to that and think about, well, the, the Vodafone and Pager example. Here, the idea is that a responsible business is intrinsically motivated by the desire to create social value. So they decided to launch Mpesa, not because they did some calculation, thinking, oh, we're going to benefit from a better reputation and we're going to be able to monetize it. They did this because this was the right thing to do. There was a big social problem out there and they had the technology to solve this as a communications company. And so they went and solved this. And so I think the shift in thinking, this idea of actually being motivated by society first, that would lead to far more investments being made, particularly intangible ones, and then a company ultimately becoming more profitable. Because if you had the first approach, if stakeholders are a means to an end, you would only do an investment if you could calculate the benefits. But many of the benefits, particularly in the modern uncertain world, are unpredictable and so you can't actually, uh, you wouldn't actually do many types of investments if you needed to be able to calculate a benefit. You wouldn't give workers days off for volunteering. You wouldn't give extended maternity or paternity leave. You can't actually calculate those benefits. But instead, if you start with purpose, if you start with serving society, you will do all of those things. And as a byproduct, you will become successful. And that's what the evidence is suggesting. Now, you might still think, well, this is unsatisfactory because, well, if shareholder value isn't the objective, how should a company make decisions? Right, so one advantage of shareholder value is there's a clear framework for making a decision. You think, well, will this decision improve shareholder value? If yes, we're going to do it. If not, we're not going to do it. But if we don't have that as the end product, then anything goes, right? So if we're saying, okay, our business should be serving society, then where's the limit? Right? If I paid every worker £1,000 per hour, right, that would be serving society, but clearly the business would not be profitable. So we need a benchmark in order to decide what decisions to take and what not to. And that's really important because, again, other advocates of responsible business who will ignore the importance of profit, they will say a company should do anything it can to serve society, but that is just unfortunately not realistic. Okay, so what the book also talks about is it comes up with a framework to think about what decisions to take and what to turn down. Now, there's three principles in the book. I'm not going to spend much time about the principle of multiplication just because of the interest of time. But instead, I will ask, I'll spend some time on the second principle, which is the principle of comparative advantage. So the comparative advantage is what is the business actually good at? So what can you do better than any competitor? And that's linked to the idea of purpose. Now, purpose is in the title of today's talk, and purpose is a word which is banded around a lot, but often people band it around without actually knowing what the word purpose means. So I define purpose as the answer to the question, how is the world a better place by your company being here? How is the world a better place by your company being here? And so the answer to that question should be, well, what the business is really good at, because that's where it has the greatest comparative advantage. So for Vodafone, 
it was to connect everybody to live a better today and to build a better tomorrow. And notice importantly, the purpose is focused. It can't be to all things to all people. It can't be to do that and to pay taxes and to um, combat climate change and so on. Those are all important things. Right? But the one thing that Vodafone is best at doing than everybody else was connecting people. So it may well be that launching M-Pesa had a negative carbon footprint because it might be that you had to launch um, a, a telecoms network there and that, that takes up energy. But because they define the most important thing as connecting people, they launched this service. And interestingly, we can also apply the idea of comparative advantage to non-core activities. So Coca-Cola, they have this um, project called Project Last Mile, which tries to which make vaccines available throughout everywhere in Africa. Now, why vaccines? Why didn't they choose to do something such as combat climate change? Why? Because Coca-Cola's comparative advantage is in transportation. Well, it makes a Coke available everywhere in uh, Africa, including that difficult last mile to the rural um, village. And so if it can make that available, why does it make vaccines available? So that's what it's doing. And here's the great thing. You might think, well, why don't they deliver books? Right? Literacy is an issue in Africa. But the great thing about Coca-Cola's transportation is that when you transport Coke and drinks, you have to keep them cool. And when you transport vaccines, you also need to keep them cool. So this is a great example of using their real expertise to do something which um, really was helping society. It was really closely tied to what they were good at. And the third principle is what I call the principle of materiality, which is what stakeholders can you make the biggest difference to? So some companies might have a purpose, to serve customers, workers, suppliers, environment and communities and generate a return to investors. Now, that might sound really inspiring. We're helping everybody. But that's unrealistic, right? Because we can't be all things to all people. There are certain decisions that you need to take where there are trade-offs. For example, let's take the French energy company Engie. It ran Hazelwood, which was the most polluting plant in the OECD. And uh, so what they thought about is if I close this polluting plant, then uh, I will make people redundant, but I will also help the environment. So if your purpose was to serve everybody, workers and the environment, that would not guide you on how to make this difficult decision. But because NG had decided to prioritise the environment, the environment was first among equals, they did take that difficult decision to close the plant. Then they try to get the workers' jobs elsewhere, but notice to have a focused purpose statement and realise, well, what's most material? As an energy company, the most material impact I can have on society is not by providing jobs, even though jobs are important, but by helping the transition to a low-carbon economy, and so that's what they led with. And indeed, evidence does support the importance of materiality. So what this is, is the materiality map by the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, which tries to um, um, highlight uh, sustainable, improve sustainable reporting. And so what they do is for every industry, they define what is material within that industry, what is important. So let's take the leftmost column in extractives and minerals processing. The environment is important. That's why we see a lot of shading in the top left. But for financials, there's no shading at the top. They don't really have that much of an effect on the environment. 
For them, what's most important are things like selling practices and product labelling. Why? Because we don't want to be in a Wells Fargo situation or in a situation of mis-selling payment protection insurance. And what the evidence suggests is the importance of materiality. So what this paper did is it took data on the environmental, social and governance performance from a data source now known as MSCI, and it looked at how did companies do if they did well on every single issue. Surprisingly, companies that did well across the board, they did not beat the market. They only outperformed by 1.5% per year, and that was not significantly different from zero. However, if they focus on companies that did well on the material issues and poorly on the immaterial ones, then they did outperform by 4.8% per year. So that's really interesting. It shows that it's better to be good at only a few things than to be good at everything. Right, because if you're good at everything, you've got no priority list, you probably aren't thinking about shareholders, and therefore you are accepting every single project. It's like somebody who chooses to sit on every charitable board and to join every non-profit. Yes, it's important to help out charities, but somebody who's focused and chooses only to join maybe two or three non-profit boards is probably going to be able to serve society much better than somebody who accepts every commitment. Okay, so that's um, what I have to say about how can companies put it into practice. We lead with society and then profits come as a byproduct. But we also need clear decision criteria so that we don't have this idea that everything goes. We need to choose what is our compound advantage and what are the stakeholders that we can make the most difference to. Now, there is a section on how investors can play their part. And actually, this is one of the unique things about the book because some other advocates of responsible business think that investors are the enemy, like they're just extracting value. But in fact, here, the evidence shows that investors, through engagement, they are partners to play in the reform of capitalism. So any reform must place investors front and centre, because investors, through an engagement, can help grow the pie. But in the interest of time, I don't have time for that, so I will just uh, skip this. I have also a lot of work um, on, on citizens, but again, I'll be quite brief. I'll only mention one thing here which is the power of agency. So the idea of agency is that actually citizens have much more power to affect companies than they have ever done. We might think companies are way more powerful now than in the history, but actually citizens are much more powerful. So as customers, a customer boycott, we see what happened to delete Uber or a boycott Volkswagen, that has huge power now because of social media. And what about you as an employee? So the book talks about the story of Abdul Durant, who was a cleaner. He cleaned the offices of Sir John Bond, the chairman of uh, HSBC in Canary Wharf, every night. And uh, one day, he stood up at the annual general meeting of HSBC and said, Sir John Bond, I'm your cleaner. I, I clean your office every night, but I get paid £5 an hour. And I've got five children. And with my £5 an hour, and despite me taking other jobs... I cannot send my children to school with proper books, with proper clothing. They go to school hungry. They can't get an education. Will you, Sir John, uh, think about giving a pay rise to me and my fellow cleaners? And the next year, Sir John Bond did. He gave them all a pay rise of 28%. So this shows the power of even a single citizen to change the wage policy of a large multinational. 
You might think, well, why do you need to do this? Couldn't shouldn't Sir John Bond know that higher wages are what people wanted? Yeah, he probably knew that higher wages are always good. But there's other things that could have been done with, with that money as well. He just didn't know just how much uh, Abdul Durant needed that extra money. So by Abdul Durant speaking up, and say, well, my children can't even go to school and, and focus because they're hungry and they don't have school uniform. That was something which was really powerful. So, sorry for missing out some of this, but I wanted to make sure I spend enough time thinking about the really serious crisis that we're in of COVID-19. Now, what I think is unique about this crisis than other crises is this is something which has hit everybody. Let's think about the financial crisis, right? That's something where we think it was the bankers which were to blame and they heard everybody else. And also the bankers sometimes got off scot-free because they sold their shares before the collapse. Whereas the crisis has hit everybody, right? So even the prime minister, even famous film stars, even uh, other other famous um, politicians like Michelle Barnier, they've all been affected by the coronavirus crisis, so we're all in this together. And because we're all in this together, this is something that we all need together to work in order to fight. And let's go back to the three um, themes of companies, investors, and citizens. And the one unifying question that I think everybody should ask is, what is in your hand? What do you have right now that you can use in order to help combat this crisis. So for companies, it's your resources. And so for some companies, this might be reasonably obvious. So let's say you're a supermarket. So let's say Sainsbury, but I know that other supermarkets have done this as well. They've decided to open for the first hour of each day, Monday, Wednesday and Friday, to give that hour to the elderly and vulnerable. And they've chosen to give them priority slots for delivery. Now, that is clearly not at the not profit maximising, right? Because the elderly and vulnerable, they're not the biggest spenders. But what is in their hand is the ability to distribute groceries and they're going to make sure it goes to the people in greatest need. But I think what's really interesting is that if we think about what is in our hand, then we can think about the box, outside the box, and think, well, even if we're a company in a very different industry, we can still help. We often think, well, it's now down to the ref- the, the, the um, grocery stores and the pharmaceutical companies to get us out of this crisis. But let's say you're Chelsea Football Club. Right? How can Chelsea Football Club help? You don't think that football is going to really help with this crisis. But what is in their hand? Well, what is in their hand is um, the hotel. And so they decided to give their hotel to allow National Health Service workers to stay in the hotel for free rather than having the long commutes each day. Or let's say you're a chain of gyms. So one rebel is a chain of gyms. What is in their hand? How can a gym help? Well, they've got a lot of empty space because the gyms are closed. And they've offered this space to the National Health Service for emergency beds or facilities. So again, this pie-growing idea here, right, thinking about what can we do, the resources we have, how can they serve society, that leads to innovation. And that's very different from just uh, thinking about pie-splitting. Okay, they can just donate some profits to charity. That might well help. But I think that's not as helpful as thinking what resource they already have and how that can be directly used. And also for companies, as a leader of a company, your ability to bear this a share of a shrinking pie. So when the pie shrinks, as it is clearly done in the crisis, it's not that we're going to make all those at the bottom bear the um, fall by 
having job losses. We, uh, people who are leaders, they need to bear their fair share. And that could involve um, taking a pay cut or in some CEO's cases, they've decided to work for a couple of months for free. What about investors? What is in your hand? In your hand is your influence over companies. You have been entrusted with the nation's wealth and you're entrusting these wealth to companies. So you get to vote on these companies. And it's in your hand to say, well, actually, when we vote in the next direction elections, we're not going to evaluate you on short term profit. We don't mind if within reason you, you, you cut the dividend or you, you take actions which are loss making if they are to serve society. And we will actually hold you accountable if you're indeed a company, maybe like Sports Direct, who's making the workers continue to work despite um, there being a lockdown. We are going to hold you accountable. We're going to sell your shares or we're going to vote against you in the next director election. So what is in your hand you can influence and make sure you use that influence to ensure that companies think about the long term, think about society, not just short term profit. And finally, let me turn this back to citizens, which everybody in this room is. So what is in your hand? It is your actions. And again, what I'd like to stress is that citizens are more powerful now than they've ever been. So in terms of your actions, right, by self-isolating, you could literally save lives. And also by not panic buying, that could save lives by allowing citizens access to, um, to, to scarce food. But, OK, these are those ideas of self-isolating and not panic buying, those have been covered by other people. So instead, let me think about some other actions that you have. So these are these might be people who are choosing to go grocery shopping for their neighbours. What is in their hand? If you're a young person, is your able-bodied and you're able to, 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 to go and, and, and do these, these long and perhaps heavy shops. Or maybe what is in your hand is, is not just that, it's finances. You might also be able to bear your share of a shrinking pie. So I have a friend who's a lawyer and he's just advanced purchased 100 copy, coffees from his local coffee shop. Why? Because uh, that just gives them an injection of a couple of hundred pounds. That could be the, enough to keep them afloat and he will just um, have the coffees over the next year or so. There's another friend, actually, his name is Ben Yo. He's one of the reviewers of the, this book for Cambridge University Press. And he's offering loans of up to £500 for four small businesses and the self-employed, which they can pay him back over the next five years just to tie them through this crisis. And now many people, citizens, might not have in their hand that ability uh, to bear the share of shrinking pie. They might not have the finances. But everybody here has worked. And those can mean a huge thing at a time of a crisis. So some of us, unfortunately, might end up in a hospital, either ourselves being sick or to visit a sick relative and be surrounded by these overworked receptionists and doctors and nurses. And just a simple thank you sincerely could go a huge way. Or maybe with our words, we're somebody who's ordered some, um, some food delivery and the person delivers it to our apartment, which might be on the third floor. And just to say, well, thank you so much for, for delivering it and bring it all the way to my room. Other delivery people, they leave it on the ground floor. And that's something just to show somebody's appreciation can go a long way. So let me end with the conclusion. And unusually, I, for the very first time in a Gresham lecture, will just read from some notes. And what I'm actually going to read from is I'm going to read from uh, some extracts from the conclusion 
of the book. And the book takes us on the journey, starting with a crisis of capitalism and then going through a solution which is a positive and optimistic one, the idea that the pie can be grown, but one based on evidence. So here goes. Capitalism is in crisis. In the eyes of millions of citizens, it's a rigged game. We can't just hope for the system to reform itself. It's inherently broken. We need a new system. And so there are serious proposals to overthrow capitalism as we know it. But such reforms risk stifling the many positive contributions that enterprises make to society. Viewing capitalism as the enemy ignores the crucial role that profits play in providing ordinary citizens with a return on their savings. So what we need is a solution that works for and involves both business and society. That's what this book has been about. It's shown that such a solution exists, and importantly, it lies within the current system, so it doesn't involve taking a wild bet on the unknown. It's backed up by rigorous evidence in the most stringent peer-reviewed journals, and complemented by concrete examples of how it can be successfully put into practice, rather than being an abstract idea. So in the light of the major challenges that both capitalism and society face, we have genuine hope. This solution is the pie-growing mentality. When an enterprise is run with the primary purpose of creating value for society, it isn't sacrificing profits and redistributing a fixed pie. Instead, it expands the total value that it creates, benefiting investors as well as stakeholders. Indeed, this approach typically ends up more profitable in the long term than an attempt to maximise shareholder value. So it's one that leaders should voluntarily embrace even in the absence of regulation or public unrest. Creating social value is neither defensive nor simply worthy. It's good business. The highest quality evidence, not wishful thinking, reaches this conclusion. To reach the land of profit, follow the road of purpose. Major change is already happening. Even though there are some high-profile cases of pie-splitting companies, a careful look at all the evidence shows that many others are quietly creating value for all members. So any company or investor that embraces the pie-growing mentality isn't swimming against the tide or going it alone. They're instead riding on the tailwinds of evidence and joining a much broader movement of peers taking very seriously their responsibility to society and attempting real change. They don't need to put their trust solely in statistics and regression coefficients, but can take guidance and learn from aspirational examples. Leaders of today's companies are in a privileged position, as technology and their global reach give them more power to create social value than arguably ever before. Investors running today's funds have larger pots of capital and stronger shareholder rights than ever before to hold companies to account for delivering both purpose and profit. And citizens have greater agency than ever before, with our ability to rally campaigns or provide public feedback on a company, or, at a personal level, to seek win-win in our interactions. It's up to all of us, together, to use this power to create a form of capitalism that works for all of society. We have the evidence to back us, the examples to inspire us, and the tools to put it into practice. Let's make this vision a reality. Well, thank you very much to everybody's attention. And if you're interested in obtaining the book, it's called Grow the Pie, 
how great companies deliver both purpose and profit. Now, had this been a physical launch, what we would have done is have the books for sale with a 20% discount. Now, that's not a physical launch. We'd still love to honour that. So if you go to it um, at the um, Cambridge University Press website and you enter the code GTP2020, you can get that discount. Then you can also get the book from it from any other site such as Amazon. But I also recognise that in these difficult times, maybe not everybody can afford to buy a book. And if that's the case, don't buy the book. Um, what you can do if you're still interested in a responsible business, but a book is a luxury at this time, go to the website of the book, which is www.growthepie.net, where I provided a lot of free resources. For example, a link to my first Gresham Lecture series on how great com- on, on how business can better serve society. So that if responsible business is of interest to you, but you're unable to buy the book, then hopefully those resources will be of use to you to see how this can be put into practice. Thank you so much to everybody for their attention. Stay well and take care of yourselves. Goodbye.